Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello, welcome back. Welcome back. We are back from our short little break to another episode of It's a Continent. How's it going? Yeah, good, good. Still definitely on a high from Kahinde's episode um, a couple of weeks ago because that was such a breath of fresh air. We absolutely loved it. And yeah, we love chatting to him. And I hope you guys, if you haven't had a chance to listen, make sure you go back and have a listen because it was amazing. And this episode is going to be just as fantastic and full of knowledge. So yeah, loved it. We are recording this. It is October. It is Black History Month. A lot of things have been happening from a UK perspective. Um, when it comes to Black History Month, I did see that Wales, you know, they've introduced a um yes. in the curriculum. They are making kind of Black History much more prominent, and it's going to now be part of the curriculum. So we are making moves finally. It's only taken a couple of years, years? But, you know, a <laughs> couple of centuries, but yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. It just feels like this Black History Month. We're seeing all sorts. We're seeing malaria vaccines. Yeah. We're seeing, you know, pioneering sickle cell treatment. Oh, yeah. We're actually, like, I don't know. It's just, it's really good news, particularly within um, our communities. But what a coincidence. It's all in Black History Month. All a coincidence. But no, honestly, this month has been, yeah, so many bits. I even forgot about, yeah, the whole sickle cell things because that propped up, yeah. Mm-hmm. This month as well. Such, yeah, amazing, amazing news and I hope the best that this kind of allows lots of people's lives to change for the better. No, 100%. Because, yeah, it's definitely been needed for us, really been needed. 100%. And um, also an interesting story that's come up um, and a story that's long overdue. So remember when we covered Thomas Sankara way back when in season one and we spoke about, you know, his leadership and his assassination by person who was supposed to be his friend and the person that trusted him the most mm. so he blaze compore has been accused along with 13 other people for the assassination charged with the assassination of thomas sankara and this week as at the time of the recording of course um the trial has started so it's only wow. taken them you know this long it is really something and um yeah we'll be following the story closely to see what happens and and hopefully justice um can be served definitely i can't believe it's taken so long but you know what it's yeah better late than never exactly now african pride quite excited about this one (laughs) (laughs) i love this bit honestly because i always wonder like what the other each one of us is going to pick so i don't know i don't know let's surprise us tell us tell us who are we giving it to here we go so we're actually going outside the continent this time around because it is such an honorable mention we're going to barbados this time and we're looking at the story of barbados removing queen elizabeth as head of state congratulations barbados yes barbados this is this yeah this is actually Yes, the clicks and the claps. Yes, Barbados. Everything. We love it. We love it. We're just very much here for it, if if you couldn't already tell. And um, Barbados is the birthplace of the British Slave Society, where, according to the Barbadian historian Hilary Beckles, the British made their fortunes from sugar, 
produced by an enslaved, disposable workforce, and this wealth secured Britain's place as an imperial superpower and caused untold suffering. Now, some wonder if Barbados could also start a domino effect and challenge the influence of Britain in all its overseas realms, already weakened by Brexit. Sorry, I had to bring that up. And Rizé Shadderton, a photographer and activist, sums it up quite nicely with the quote, We've been independent since 1966, yet we are still clinging on to these vestiges of colonialism that aren't doing us any good. True. Preach. Mm -hmm. I think a clean break would have been good for our country and good for us. So yeah, shout out Barbados for this ruling. And there's also been debates on if Barbadians should go the whole way and start driving on the right. Uh, as British colonial influences led them to drive on the left, which I didn't realise was a colonial export. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it turns out a lot of former British colonies decided to change to drive to the right to go against the grain once they were independent. And mm-hmm. I think I read a book about this, that Nigeria decided to drive on the right after independence. Let's see, will the breakup between Barbados and the British monarchy inspire other countries to do the same? If I'm being quite honest, I didn't know that Queen Lizzie was still out here being head of state of these countries oh she still was yeah yeah no she still was but i definitely think this is gonna create a domino effect oh yeah 100 percent. is she gonna find a way to keep them is there gonna be some you know side hustle bits of money that all of a sudden she finds under her bed and then decides you know (laughs) i don't know i'm just putting out there because i think yeah i can definitely see it creating a bit more of a domino effect or the british government will be like well, in fact, this is our idea and we've decided to let everybody be free officially. I, I honestly... I Oh, a bit like independent story where they're yeah, not yeah, free. Like, yeah, this was actually our idea. Yeah, thanks for coming up with that. Yeah, yeah it's been in the works for a while. For uh... a while, yeah. It'll be one of those ones, one of those ones. But like, mate, you're just copying our homework. What are you talking about? Basically. No, I like that. Out of the continent, but yeah, so happy for Barbados. Congrats. So happy. I hope they have a whole bunch of celebrations when it finally goes through. So this week's episode takes us to Malawi, a country in southeastern Africa, bordering Zambia, Tanzania and Mozambique. It's a narrow landlocked strip of land, although it does share a border with Lake Malawi. And today we're going to look at the life of Vera Chiwa. Vera Chiwa was Malawi's first female lawyer and became a founding member of the Malawi Congress Party and the Nyasaland African Women's League. The name Nyasaland was what Malawi was known by before independence. Chiwa's belief in multi-party democratic rule came at a time when dangerous despot Hastings Banda ruled the nation. Banda ended up charging Vera and her husband Orton with treason, sentencing them to death, which is really extreme, but um, that is what despots do. That's what they do, yep. Vera was born in 1932 to parents who frequently stood up against European authority. Her mother, Elizabeth Chawambo, was always dressed to the nines, and the white community who lived there would often voice their discontent, but she would always say, what's your problem? I do my hair as I please, my husband buys me dresses, and I can dress as I want. I love this energy. I absolutely love this energy. I want to be able to one day be like, my husband buys me dresses. (laughs) What a flex. Oh, yeah. I completely, yeah, yeah, no, okay, also buys me dresses. No man has ever done that, so. (laughs) I'm loving it. Just the fact that she's like, this is me, I'm owning it. Yeah, I do what I want. Yeah, 
it was a bit like, do you remember the story I told you about in the workplace and someone was like, you know, I love my red lipstick. Um, oh, yeah. Literally have it on regardless of whatever the event or what I'm wearing. And someone was like, do you know what, Astra, I just want to tell you something. You're just really brave wearing red in the office. It's just super brave of you. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> you know what, for a minute, I thought she was going to say, can I take a photo of your lips so I can show it to someone? Oh, <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> Show it to my plastic surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Like this, please. Like this. Um, And I was like, I never thought wearing red was such a act of bravery, but apparently it was according to her. But yeah. It's like when they're like, oh, wow, you always change your hair. I wish I could do that. And you're like, you you can, though. You can. (laughs) Like, you really can. (laughs) (laughs) This is a weave. (laughs) Yeah. Vera's father, Theodore, was a medical officer and worked on a station in Mzimba. He was more experienced than his white peers and would often see these inexperienced doctors prescribe incorrect treatment for patients. For example, they would give medicine when the patient actually needed an operation. Was that because they just didn't care also? Probably. Like, I think inexperienced, but also just indifference because... Apathetic. Yeah. That is also true. And Theodore would often argue with his counterparts, but they didn't want to be overruled, particularly by an African man, because heaven forbid. Oh, gosh. Um, What would he know? You know, he's also gone in and trained as a doctor, but obviously he's not quite sure what he's talking about. Can't be sure. So this often, unfortunately, then led to Theodore finding out that patients' cause of death could have been avoided. And so this kind of highlights that Chiwa's family was already unafraid to challenge the powers that be. And they often spoke out um, about politics with family members who actually ended up previously being arrested by colonial authorities within the country. A little bit more about kind of Vera herself. So whilst growing up, she lived with an uncle in Livingstonia. The names here, just the lack of anything. How can you call a place Livingstonia? Like what? (laughs) What's so inspirational about that? So she lived with her uncle whilst her parents worked in the Congo. Vera's grandmother encouraged her to attend school and she became the only girl out of 72 pupils in primary school and again the only girl amongst 24 boys in secondary school. Despite the full support of her family, women around her often questioned why she was going to school. As a young adult, Vera met Orton. And she actually declined his proposals uh, three times as this was part of the culture. And her uncle, who was her guardian at the time, insisted that Orton continue to allow Vera to study once he married her. It's so nice to see that how much her uncle also just pushed her to kind of carry on with her education, even though she got married. Because I think sometimes when we share these stories, especially back then, it's often been, you know, getting married. That is it. You know, this whole education piece, you forget about it. Mm. But it's really nice to see that he kind of, that was sort of like a, a condition. Yeah, part of the condition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Part of the condition of marrying her. Because to see that Vera was the only girl in the whole of her schools, from primary and secondary, it just shows that her family were very determined and were prepared to put her through school. She was good at it and she enjoyed it and kind of, why not? So Why not, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really good to see. When it came to Malara itself, insidious forms of racism happened. And whilst Vera's husband, Autumn, was studying for the bar, Vera took on a position as a clerk within public service. She was the minority again, the only African and the only woman. So much relatability, honestly. (laughs) To no one's... You know, sometimes it's like, again, it really... Yeah, 
I get it. And still, I rise. Mm -hmm. To no one's surprise, Rhea was paid less than white men who were less qualified. At the time, white colonial officers referred to African civil servants as boys. Senior African civil servants received five to six times less payment than young white daughters of colonial officers who were on a jolly from the UK as holiday work. It's important to note that independence didn't come easy to many nations on the continent. And Malawi, then known as Nyasaland, was no exception. While district commissioners were harsh in their response to public demand for freedom and made it clear that every troublemaker would be convicted as charged with or without evidence. Members of the Nyasaland African Congress, the NAC, became a target. The police began shooting during pro-independence demonstrations, with women and children running for their lives. Most people ran away, but others didn't make it out alive. Vera and her husband were arrested with other NAC members as part of the fight against independence. They were put on trial for supposedly planning to kill white people. Sorry, it's just so absurd. <sighs> just any reason, isn't it? Just fabricating anything. Does it not sound ridiculous to them? Do you know what I mean? Like After actually shooting into a crowd. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to tell you that you were yeah. trying to kill me. What? Yeah, right. Right. Ha- Gosh, they've been watching too many of those weird ass um, Netflix documentaries. With... Well, they, they didn't even exist at the time. Yeah. <laughs> a passenger in a car driving away from the demonstrations turned out to be a government agent planted amongst demonstrators and reported conversations to the colonial police. Six months of detention in northern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, followed with dire conditions. This experience led to Vera to form the League of Malawi Women. So it just kind of goes to show that independence movements were, it wasn't like it was just handed to them. There was a lot of bloodshed in the process. The independence was really hard fought. And on July the 6th, 1964, Nyasaland finally gained independence from Britain and changed its name to Malawi. We then find ourselves shortly after independence at the cabinet crisis where Hastings Banda, a revolutionary turned despot, classic, always, 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 wanted control over the entire system of power and began suppressing those who opposed him. So at the time, um, Vera was studying in London and found out that violence broke out within areas of Malawi. Ministers in the NAC didn't agree with Banda as he refused to Africanize the civil service and replace white civil servants. So remember how racist it was. He basically didn't want to change that. Mm. Um, and according to the Skinner report, the wage gap between black and white civil servants remained the same. Vera's husband Orton's car was set on fire by the Banda regime and the Chiwas later fled their beloved Malawi and lived in exile. Julius Nyerere, who we covered in season three, episode four, shout out him, was sympathetic to the ministers who didn't agree with Banda and he made Tanzania a safe space along with refugee status, a house and a stipend given to those who had to leave the country. On Christmas Eve 1981, Vera and her husband were on their way to meet with other exiled Malawians in Zambia when they were kidnapped. Armed men dragged them out and threw them to the ground. And we're just going to put a trigger warning because of police brutality. In her autobiography, Vera described how she was kicked in the stomach, resulting in her bleeding and defecating. She was pushed and handcuffed, shackled and blindfolded and thrown into another vehicle. 
away from her husband Orton. She was kept in a small room for three months in a place deep in the forest in Malawi. Her medical condition worsened as she couldn't access the medication for her high blood pressure and thyroid issues. Just everything that she's... I can't even imagine, like, your husband, you're torn away from him, and everything that you're being put through physically and also just also mentally as well. Mm. It's... Yeah. Yeah, there are no words. Vera and her family's ordeal continued in prison, a large cell meant for 50 people. Vera was not allowed to speak to anyone and the police claimed they came back to Malawi to kill Banda when this clearly wasn't the case. They were kidnapped. It's very similar to the same as the colonial rule, right? Because previously you had the British colonial officer saying, oh, you're trying to kill white people. Now you've got Banda's government saying you're trying to kill Banda. Yeah, like they're just just a copy and paste of what they were doing before and just being like, well, you're technically just trying to kill him. So we might as that's why we've put you in there. Any reason just falsifying things to justify their behavior honestly it kind of reminds me of that conversation with the kid i'm gonna bring up the kid day conversation <laughs> but you know that bit where he was talking about people especially uh leaders who received their education abroad much like banda did and then they come back and then they end up just like they use those tools to destroy their country is this not what we're seeing yeah but i think with him he was there right when white people were around and you know his community and his people were being discriminated against. It's just for me, I just can't compute or understand how then you would do the same for people who were, you know, Vera and her family were fighting for freedom. For you, yeah. And so you've gained that freedom, but why are you still persecuting them? Yeah. It just doesn't, I don't understand what he has to gain there, but that might be, you know, some hidden hidden pieces because these despots will really really be really despotting at the time Mm -hmm, definitely only way to describe it on july 29th 1982 banda's government charged vera and orton with treason this meant they had to attend traditional court which if we're being honest was a way for banda to do away with political opponents under the guise of a legal process vera herself described it as a kangaroo court particularly as both her and her husband were denied legal representation they were both lawyers and ended up representing themselves The charge was bogus from the beginning. According to the Evidence and Procedure Act, a person tried with treason had to be a resident of Malawi. They weren't as they were in exile. (sighs) Even just not even making sense of their own acts. These people literally kidnapped them, removed them from the country that they were in, took them to Malawi and then said that they were residents of Malawi. They were kidnapped. The court already decided they were troublesome people. Vera and Orton's fate was already decided, but the process dragged on for nine months. They were sentenced to death on May 6, 1983. Vera would only see her husband twice over the next nine years. Nine years? Yeah. She wasn't allowed to see him, couldn't have visitors, pen, paper or books. She couldn't receive or write letters to loved ones and wasn't allowed to talk to other prisoners or the guards. She slept on a concrete floor on a blanket with another blanket for cover. Her health condition deteriorated further and the food served was often rotten and giving way to dysentery. Vera made a promise to her husband that she would keep the will to live, exercise and pray, which she credits to have kept her going. She used to plant seeds outside her cell and made a small garden with pumpkins, beans and other vegetables. By June 1984, her and Autumn's sentences changed from death sentences to life in prison. 
She later found out through an American woman in the late 1980s that she and her husband were famous prisoners of conscience for Amnesty International. She took comfort that many people knew of their plight. Must have been so, like, Mm. lonely. Like, I guess, yeah, she had no contact to the outside world that things like, you know, finding this out must have really just uplifted her a little bit that people were out there remembering them. Yeah. so much time had, like, nine years. Yeah, and not able to communicate with her loved ones or anyone, or even her husband. Mm-hmm. And just a quick note, so a prisoner of conscience is someone who is sent to prison for their race, sexual orientation, religion, political views, or the non-violent expression of their beliefs. The most famous example on the continent is probably Nelson Mandela. I'm baffled by how just imagining hearing this in the late 80s that this woman is saying you are not famous but you're out there your faces are out there people know about what yeah people know about your struggle people know about what's going on you're not on your own and how I can't even begin to imagine how must that must have felt for her you know provided with a bit of encouragement but also you're thinking am I close to the end of actually coming out of this and Mm. uh, yeah Mm, no it's just I I can't even imagine what that the mental space Mm. in this situation at all like it is just I can't even begin to imagine the amount of strength it must have taken both of them to just keep going year on year and also the fact that like we said before it is being done to you by a leader who was also fighting for independence and regaining ownership of the country, but for some reason they're turning against you and have turned against you. And if that person who was fighting for change has turned against you, who else do you have? Mm. That is, I can't imagine how, yeah, how lonely that must have felt for them. No, completely. Orton Chiwa managed to smuggle a letter about the awful conditions in prison and deaths due to rotten food which later reached the International Red Cross. This led to a delegation inspecting the prisons in 1990. A lot of human rights abuses came to light, poor food, health and hygiene, to prisoners murdered or beaten to death if they tried to escape. On September 25, 1992, after more than 10 years in prison, Vera was escorted to a room in the main hall of the prison and met with lawyers from Britain. It was at this moment that Vera saw her husband Orton for the first time since their imprisonment. Vera writes about this moment in her autobiography saying that she couldn't describe it adequately. I, I don't even think that words would actually be able to mm-hmm. kind of depict what you, how you would describe that moment, to be honest. Very shortly after this meeting, on December the 20th, 1992, Vera's husband was found dead in his prison cell. It's believed that he was killed by lethal injection. Vera was allowed to see her husband's body in the mortuary, but not permitted to go to his funeral. Her children went to bury Orton's body in northern Malawi and were allowed to visit Vera for the first time. She didn't recognise one of her sons as he'd grown up so much. Just so much time had passed. So much time had elapsed. Yeah, and... The fact that her husband actually got killed by lethal injection as well, that clearly was state-mandated murder, wasn't it? Because it was supposed to be a life sentence. Yeah. And to also kind of feel potentially being escorted to the room a couple of months beforehand in September. Yeah, to have seen him. And to have seen him must have definitely given her some sense of hope. But then three months later, for him to have been killed, just how that must have played with her emotions. Honestly, the level I can't... Just imagining how 
rearing my stuff about and putting my just makes me it's it's very an overwhelming feeling and I can't imagine her having kind of living through that and dealing with that and not having anybody else to yeah. depend on or just have like a a shoulder or someone to comfort her in these moments. It wasn't until January the 24th, 1993, that Vera Chua was finally released from prison. She kissed the ground outside the prison gates, taking a while to acclimatise to life outside her confinement. The American ambassador visited and said that many embassies and heads of state pushed for her release. Al Gore, the US vice president at the time, wrote a letter to Banda, as did President Moy from Kenya. And, sorry, even the Queen of England. Mm. So... Yeah, you know that obviously the situation has escalated as she has to get involved here. By this point, the international community grew weary of Banda's dictatorship and withheld aid to Malawi because of poor human rights conditions. And this was likely a factor in Vera's release. In June 1994, Dr. Bakili Mulizi defeated Banda at the polls and became the first democratically elected president of Malawi. Vera Chua is still alive and is in her late 80s and she continued working in fighting for women's rights and women's empowerment. Ooh, what a story. Yeah, that was a, yeah. <laughs> don't, 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 yeah, there are no words. I just don't know where to end this one. It's definitely one to reflect on and just think how for those people who were at the heart of fighting for a country's independence, but then having their hopes of that well and truly shattered mm. by the people who then come into power, you know, and are fighting alongside them and all of a sudden turning against them. And I think it's something which we've seen in so many countries that we've covered in terms of first leader comes in, is all like, you know, I'm going to deliver change. It's going to be different. It's going to be better. We've got our freedom now to then completely turning against their people. Mm. seeing that reality and what this family has had to deal with is, is yeah difficult. the fact that they just they had that sort of, that strength to keep going and they really really were had such strong beliefs that they were prepared to die for them and yeah. kind of also reminds us of reminds me of the conversation we had with uh, farida as well yeah uh, when she was speaking True. about there are people that are actually willing to die for their, this cause because to live is what the conditions were just not especially under oppressive rule Mm -hmm. so and i think it's that isn't it it's that yeah knowing that actually living yes you can live but what sort of life are you having you really do need to fight and kind of put your life on the line to even get a semblance of getting some form of change i definitely need to read her autobiography i feel like oh yeah definitely that is next um on my list it's nice to get, just to end it in a slightly lighthearted, because I'm, as we're recording this, I can see on my little table the books that I've got, but just to have people that you can look at from the continent and say, these are the people and the names that have really been, that were fighting. I've got Farida's book in front of me, I've got Wangari's yeah. book in front of me. Like, you No, know, it's good to just have these women, African women, as household names. Yeah. Because I, I don't think that I would have been aware of the work that you know Wangari was doing, that Farida was doing, and even what Vera was doing mm-hmm. um, until it came to podcasting our research and what we do. So that's why we do what we do, isn't it? Just highlighting stories that we've never quite heard the detail of before. 
that is us done for this week and this episode thank you so much for listening we will see you in two weeks time with our next episode so we're on twitter at it's a continent and we're on instagram at it's a continent pod also in the episode description we have the links to pre-order our book it's a continent book so feel free to check that out not long to go guys not long to go not long to go deadlines are looming but we move we'll see you later perfect bye see you later. bye